very nervous now, so I've written everything down word for word in case you forget it. Uh, last week I was heading out of church, and I thought I was going for a week off. And I met Stephen at the door, and he just ambushed me and says, would you give your testimony next week? I had no way out, so that's why I'm up here tonight. And I've only had two nights sleep this week, for I couldn't hardly sleep thinking about it. But it, just open my verse, it's Proverbs 22, verse 6. And it says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he, when he is old, he will not depart from it, from it, from it. And that's, uh, that's a verse that I think about whenever I realize where I went in my life and where, how far down the road of sin I went. But what I was taught and what I learned when I was young, when I was young by my mother and father and what I learned at Sunday school stayed with me my whole life. And even though I was in the depths of sin, I knew what I was doing was wrong. And just to say from the outset, I'm not a public speaker by any means, and you'll, you'll work that out anyway. So I find this very difficult. I would regard this as a great responsibility to tell my testimony to you, showing you where God has brought me from, what he has done for me, and what he continues to do for me to this day. And without giving any glory to the devil in any way, I could stand up here tonight and tell you of all sorts of stories from now until the cows come home. And probably you wouldn't believe me. And number one, it wouldn't glorify our Saviour. I trust anything of me tonight. Anything of myself will be as the chaff, but what is of the Lord maybe of use to even someone here tonight. I was born in, my name's Don, I was born in September 1978 up at Dungan Hospital. I was the oldest of two boys, my brother being 18 months younger than myself. My mum was saved as long as I can remember. I think she was saved when she was 18 or something. And my dad, he got saved when he was eight. As I'm sure many of you older people are aware, uh, the world, Northern Ireland, of what was Northern Ireland was like in the 1980s and the 1990s, and as a young boy, for some reason, was fascinated and interested in all the things that were going on in the news. And from a very young age, I watched the news like a hawk, and I could have told you the ins and outs of everything on the news, and I followed it closely. I was sent to school, just like everyone else back then, and I didn't do a tap from I went to school, the very first day I went to the, the last day I left it, I hated school. I was more interested in what was going on outside the window. And I spent my school days looking out of it and causing mischief. I can remember when the cane was moved in P5, and I was thinking this was great because I had been the wrong end of it a right few times by that stage. And that was the way I carried on at school, more or less, until I left it when I was 16. I'd done nothing on... My attitude was, I'm just going to join the army whenever I'm 16 and I don't need any exams. And that's just the way I lived and thought it was, thought it was going to, things were going to pan out like that. I can remember when I was about six or seven, I was sitting watching the TV one Saturday morning, it must have been around the 12th of June, because that's the date the troop and the colour is. And the Queen's birthday parade was on, I mean, saying to my dad, I says, I want to do that. And that's just what I had in my head to do more or less from that, from then on, the whole way through school. When I was nine, after my father got saved, we moved out from Dungan. We lived in the town. We moved out to Tamnamore. And not long after that, me and my brother, we joined the local band there and then eventually the Lloyds. But I would say from that point on that that's where my life started to go down the hill and go the wrong road. And I started doing things they shouldn't have been doing, fiddling about with cigarettes, which thankfully I walked away from. But started to drink from a very early age on... The drink was a different story. I couldn't get away from it. I can remember the first time 
I went home and I was drunk and I was denying to my mother. She was asking me, what had you been drinking? And I was denying her that I hadn't and it was obvious that I had. She knew fine well that I'd been drinking. I was only fooling myself. And you know, the drink continued bit by bit to get a hold of me as I went up through my teenage years until I left school. I was buying drink with the money I had for working after school and Saturdays. I didn't have much money, but I always had money for drink. Once it came time for leaving school, I couldn't wait. At that time, the army had an advert in the paper saying, or all you had to do was fill in the paper, fill in the dots with your name and whatever else on it, and your parents or a parent had to sign it. So I said to my mum, I brought this thing to my mum and it had all filled out and all. all. All she had to do was sign it. And she says to me, if you think I'm signing that, you've an our thing coming. So that was my bubble burst. And I didn't know what to do. For that's all I had in my head to do from was no age. So I had to do something. So I decided, I knew I wasn't going to stay at school, so I decided to go to Dungan Tack for a while. And I went there. I, done, I didn't last a full, I only lasted a month. I didn't last a full day in any class. Uh, I hated it, and I was working in an engineering place at that time after school and on Saturdays, and I just left. I just walked out of the place whenever I felt like it and went to work and made money. That's just the way I thought it was better to make money than get qualifications. So I just quit that after a month. And then seen a course advertised in the one of them training agency places up in the town, and they went in, and you were to do a course in Belfast, AutoCAD or something, and you get paid for doing it, and I thought, this is a great job, this. I go and get money for sitting in the classroom and I didn't mind the first part of it but the second part of it I hadn't a clue what I was doing because I never read nothing and I had no interest and I just couldn't work out what I was doing so I got usually out story after about six months I got fed up with that too and then I decided right I'll go and serve my time as a plumber because it was just I couldn't get away to the army when I was 18 so I thought I'll do this till I'm 18 and then I'll get away whenever my man and I can't stop me that's just what I had in my head so I started the plumbing, and after a while I thought, right, I might as well just continue this and get my paperwork and get my time served before I go to the army, so I did. And in the meantime, I was earning just enough money to keep a, a car on the road, buy clothes once a year in the sale, and spend the rest on drinking and ganching. I eventually got my way and joined the army in 1989 to the dismay of my mum and dad. I can remember when I come home and said, my dad says to me, what have you joined? I says, I've joined the Irish Guard. He says, what are you doing that for? Why do you not join the engineers or something? And I says, Reverend Matthews, he says, I want to be a real soldier. <laughs> but uh, I was extremely fit. And whenever I went down to Balamina, I had already been doing, I had got a training program off the army for a year. And I was as fit as a fiddle. I went down to Balamina, got my name on the wall for breaking a pile of records. I went, when I was doing the beep test, they just stopped it because I didn't stop and everyone else had dropped out. And if you know anything about the infantry, uh, fitness is more important than brains, so I suited down to the ground. I joined my battalion, the Irish Guards, who were in Germany at the time. And if my life wasn't already in a spiral of sin, it was certainly going to get worse now. Going to a place where alcohol was pence, not pounds, it was just a recipe for disaster. Everything revolved around drinking the army. Even in the middle of the desert, in the Muslim country in the Middle East, we could get drink when the local population weren't allowed to drink. So while as far as my career was going, I was flying, moving up the ranks quick, quicker than anybody else. Morally and spiritually, I was bankrupt. Every time I went to leave, home and leave, you only got to leave three times a year way back at the start. We couldn't afford to go home any other time. 
It was paid for. My mum used to put the Bible in my bag every, and whenever I used to come back to Germany or London, wherever it was based at the time, I'd open the bag and find the Bible sitting on the top of the bag. And I'd put it away. I never looked at it. Put it away and uh, bring it home again. And the next time, the same thing happened over and over again. The Bible was always in my bag when I went away. And I remember, I also remember one night, it was in Germany, and I dreamt the Lord had returned. And I, I woke up and I switched on the TV thinking that if the Lord had returned, it would be on the news if something like this has happened. And it unsettled me. And you know, even, even though I was living a sinful life, I knew that I had to be saved. And I knew what I was doing was sinful, but I was a fool. I just kept continuing on the way I was going. Many people ask, what was your job in the army? And it's not easy to answer. In the infantry, you do many jobs from a driver to a drill instructor, to a weapons instructor, to a sniper. There's many, and i done many. But in the main, for by two years up in Oma with the Royal Ash, I was a Iraqi soldier. My job, or our job, was more or less to dig a hole in the ground in the middle of the night without being seen, sit there and watch for the enemy, or certain individuals or location, and report back on it. Or else go forward with the main fighting force, find the enemy, sneak up on them, get information, sneak away without getting caught, Tell the command master how he was to attack, where to attack, and any other information he may need on the enemy. And I was reasonably good at it. I never got caught. Never ever got caught in stalking, training, and anything. That was my claim to fame, and I enjoyed it. In 2003, Tony Blair, the same Tony Blair that you hear in the news this week, deceived the nation into going into war with Iraq. Now, at the time I was up, I was up for it. I'd have been gutted if I hadn't have got but during this invasion, I started to see some things that didn't add up. I asked a few questions, but I didn't really pursue or look into anything. I'd just done my job, and I volunteered for patrols, even when, other, uh, even when my platoon wasn't going out. I volunteered to go because I enjoyed it so much. I won't say too much about Iraq, just that it was, it was bloody, it was brutal, and on hindsight it was wrong. What we went in there and done was wrong. We absolutely destroyed a country and its people over lies. After coming back from Iraq, I got a long period of leave and uh, at that time I'd met Janet and we started going out. And I started to come home more often as the battalion had moved back to London for public duties. So while I wasn't wearing a red tunic in Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle, I was trying to get home as many weekends as I could. Janet hadn't a clue what she let herself in for. I was away most of the time in those early years, and I, would spend, I spent, I would say, easy 90% of my time on operations and training. And then, when the army didn't have you, then squeezing in as much time back here as I could and spending time with Janet. But by this stage, I was off the rails with a drink. I don't know how many times I evaded the police, how many times I was caught. For a few years, I was in front of the Sergeant Major regularly for my behaviour once we got let out. And then at one stage, I was looking at up to six years in a German prison. Thankfully, it didn't come to that, but I was off the rails. I knew I had to change something or Janet would be gone, but as far as the battalion was concerned, I could do no wrong. As long as I'd done my job well, they would put up on me and on some occasions fight my corner even when I had done wrong. So I decided I need to do something and I decided to transfer to the Royal Irish who were up in Oma, the home service. 
I spent two years with him there, and secretly, I didn't tell Janet, but secretly I thought that when I got settled into my company, I would volunteer for Afghanistan, so I was thinking that I would kill two birds with one stone. I'd get plenty of soldiering, plenty of operations, and plenty of time at home with Janet. But this didn't happen. I was only there a couple of months, and they decided to disband. And the platoon commander told me, he says, you won't be allowed to go on tour now because the regiment don't want the risk of having someone killed in Afghanistan on the mouth of disbandment. So it was my plan out to win the again. In the meantime, Janet was starting to ask me about things about God and the Bible, this type of stuff. And I always would have told her the truth of the gospel and the Bible whenever she asked, even though I wasn't saved myself. I was coming under severe conviction around this time. And my behaviour and thinking and all the things that along with, all the things that went along with, were no longer now just affecting myself, but ours, moreover, Janet. By this time, I'd slacked well off in the drinking. This time, but I'd, done, I'd, I'd already done the damage. It was too late. I'd done too much damage. In February 2007, I went to a stag of a friend, and I felt so uncomfortable. I just felt out of place. I had enough of this life. I was fed up with it. And I couldn't wait to get home. On the same month, February 2007, I was going to Wales on a course that month too. On the 11th of February, I was to be down in Bracken and Wales to go on the course. I promised Janet I would behave myself and I meant it, but it wasn't enough. I arrived in Wales the night before the course and I was on the plane, or I was on the phone to Janet. And everything was just a mess. I'd messed up everything. And I said to Janet, I just says, I'm going to get saved. And I knew it was only me. Maybe that's, it was an escape. I don't know. It was the only way around all this mess that I had created. So in the room in my bed that night, I just asked the Lord to save me. I can't remember what I said or what I prayed, but I felt the burden lifted. I sat and prayed then for maybe half an hour after that. I prayed that Janet would get saved too. And she phoned me at 12 o'clock, just before 12 o'clock that night, and said her sister had led her to the Lord. And I just felt the relief. I just felt everything had changed. And literally half of the vocabulary had gone in a second because if anybody knows anything about the military, every other word's a swear word. And that's the way I lived. And it had all gone. I just wanted to go home. So I was supposed to be going on this course in the morning, but I wanted to go home. So I prayed that I would go and do the induction tests for the course and passed them all, but still somehow managed to get home some road. And the Lord answered prayer. I passed all the tests with flying colours. And I was down as a travelling reserve on the, on the paperwork sent by the battalion, so I got sent home. And I was so overjoyed. I was never as happy diving up to the boat in Stranoir as that day. We started attending church and different meetings and stuff at that time and learning more of God. And I left the band and the orange and all those things that were bringing me down the wrong road. Just after that, I had an opportunity to leave the army with the spamment and all. After much thought, I decided, maybe wrong, on hindsight it may have been the wrong decision, I decided that I was going to stay in. And I transferred the Royal Green Jackets. We are now the rifles, specifically two rifles, who were getting posted to Ballykinler down County Down. I could have went back to the Irish Guards, but I knew it would be suicide for my Christian life to do that, because they just went back there and they'd been expected to live the way that I was before, so I said I wasn't going back. Janet wasn't entirely happy about this, but she went along with it reluctantly. 
On transfer of the rifles, I immediately nailed my colours to the mast and I told the lads and my superiors that I was a Christian. Those who I worked with closely accepted this and to a certain extent respected it. But some of those higher up, not so much. But in the main, it was not as hard as I thought it was going to be. Even, even when they run, they run the mess functions, uh, which is basically a drinking session, you go and eat and the drink and then they'll fight afterwards. That's more or less what happens. Uh, I, admonished, I, wasn't, I didn't want to go. And the lads used to just mark me in on the road as if I was there. Nobody even knew I wasn't there because all the lads had rallied around and made sure that they covered for me. Before I transferred, I knew we would deploy to Afghanistan in March or April 2009. And I was looking forward to it. That sounds odd. But a lot of lads, mainly keen boys, can't wait to get out there. And I was no different. I was no different. There'd be no point in joining if you weren't going to do that or if you didn't want to do that. So from getting saved in February 2007, I transferred, transferred down to Bali Kinner, and I spent most of my time away. And then the first part of 2008, 10 weeks, uh, for the first 10, early in 2008 before April, 10 weeks I was away. And I come back and we got married in April. And then I was away again for an hour, six weeks. And then I was in exercise in England for most of the next year until uh, 2009. And Janet was at home most of this time on her own. And it's not easy. And sometimes you can see, well, I shouldn't say something, I just can see why families break down. The breakdown of families in the military is extremely high. On hindsight, I would say now that it's not good for a man to spend that amount of time away from his family and his wife. 2008 was a, was a significant year in our life. I deployed to Afghanistan in March. And I left Janet at home, who was pregnant, on her own thinking that by the time I was home, coming home again, the baby would be near due. However, this was not to be. I was only away three weeks or so. And I tried to phone home and there was no answer. And I, I just knew what had went wrong. I knew what was wrong, still. I knew it was the baby, but I hadn't been told. And I was on an observation post in Kajaki in Northern Hammond at the time, up the mountain. And I got word that I had to go down and see the company commander. And I knew rightly what it was before I got down there, but he just confirmed to me what it, he just confirmed to me what I'd already thought. And he said to me, he said to me, yeah, he was going to relieve me of my duties for a few days to mourn or be in my own or whatever. And I said to him, sir, that's the worst thing you can do. Or the worst thing you do is make me sit in the room and moan and do nothing. He says, the best thing for me to do, for, for me to do is just to keep doing my job. So I asked him for an hour. And I just went away out of the road and had a cry to myself and I prayed to the Lord seeking help for him or for myself and Janet because I hadn't even been speaking to her at this time and I wouldn't be speaking to her for an hour a few days. I continued on with my job and casualties were going through the roof. Our platoon wasn't too bad overall. But we were starting to run out of we run out of fresh food and ammunition and everything. We were more or less under siege, and surrounded. Helicopter, helicopters weren't flying in or out. Due to the mountain casualty situation and manpower problem, I ended up stepping up to platoon commander's job as a fire support group commander. My proper job was a platoon sergeant for FSG. More or less, what you do is a platoon sergeant. You sit at the back, let everybody go forward and do what they have to do, and then if there's casualties or a resupply or anything, you bring it forward or you bring 
Do you ever need to come back as a casualty? And I was quite happy being a platoon sergeant, but I was more than happy to step up and relish the challenge. I continued in this job until September, when a colour sergeant came in to take over the racket platoon, so I was going to go back to my platoon sergeant's job. But I had to do a handover takeover with him. I had to do so many patrols for him with me so I could show him the ropes. And I think I'd done two patrols for him and I said I'd do one more. And on the 1st of September, after, after about just before first light, we left on this May fine patrol that I was to be at the front. We had just crossed a wadi to a place, towards a place called the Pump House. And the snipers, they were behind me in a quad and a trailer and they come up and they says to, said to me, uh, do you want us to go down the road first? It's cleared. The engineers cleared it last week. I had been an R&R for 10 days a week, just previous to that. And I just got back. And I said, no, stay behind me because if something happens, I'm more likely to survive the news because I was in a thing, a vehicle called a Jackal, which is an armoured vehicle. So... Uh, not long after that, going over the water, we're going up the road and I noticed the ground had all been dug up and was loose. And we'd seen it all before, we'd seen so many IEDs and explosions when we were there. And I seen the ground all dug up and it was, as, it was right underneath me. And I said to the driver to stop, but it was too late. As soon as the Afghans or the Taliban or whatever you want to call them, Seeing that we had stopped, they just pressed the button. And all I can describe what happened was there was a large crack. And it's not the way you would see an explosion from a distance or from, if you're outside of it. It's, it's just a large crack. And I was sur- just surrounded by a really bright light. It was similar to, similar to the light of a welder, except it was all around. It's just all around me and I was in it. And I felt my legs go straight away. And let a bit of a yelp out of me. I knew straight away what was going on. Like, I was knocked out and I was blew out of the vehicle, 15 or 20 foot an hour across the road. And I was in and out of consciousness. And I came round on the ground and I sat up and I looked at my legs and there was blood all over my trousers and my boots. And my legs weren't even pointing in the right direction. And I thought straight away, that's it, I'm going to lose my legs here. Because everybody was losing their legs and limbs right, left and centre with these AED blasts. So as soon as I looked at my legs, I passed out again. I came round again, and I was able to hold up my hand there, because I could hear the lads calling for me. They thought I was dead. They couldn't even find me. I held my hand up, and they gave me morphine, patched me up, and took me back somewhere to wait in the helicopter, come to take me out. But while I was lying there in the stretcher, I started to pray, and every time I closed my eyes to pray, the sergeant major kept saying, stay with us, stay with us. They thought I was going to die. I, I didn't think it was going to die. Like I, was, I didn't think it was going to die. I just thought it was going to be all right because I was praying. And uh, I says to them, don't worry, I'm only praying. The same man, the same man who was there with me at the stretcher made sure that he went back to our base and took my Bible out of my kit and sent my Bible down to me in the hospital. The Americans then came and lifted me in a Black Hawk helicopter. And I uh, always wanted to be in a Black Hawk, but I didn't think it was going to be, it was going to pan out the way it did. I ended up 
I told him, I says, I sat up in the helicopter and I says, I'm going to be sick. And the boy says, some American says, you do whatever you want. And I was sick all over the place. And they just, and they gave me ketamine and everything to take the pain away. I'm forever thankful to them. Uh, and that was the last I seen in the battlefield. I had to wait a week in the field hospital in Afghanistan before I could get flew out to the UK because the army had run out of blood. There was that much blood being used at that time with casualties that had run out of blood and I had to wait a week. To cut a long story short, that day, whether I accepted it or not, I finished my career in the army and was life-changing in many ways for both me and Janet. I spent the next four and a half years or so going under the surgeon's knife, I don't know how many times, on the cycle of going through wheelchair, crutches, walking until Christmas 2013 when I finally got to the sort of physical ability or standard that I am now. I still have problems, but when I look back and see what happened and what could have happened and the shape others ended up, I cannot but only be glad and praise the Lord for preserving me from the mouth of death. After this whole carry-on, we thought we wouldn't be able to have children, and that's what the doctor said too. But praise the Lord, he blessed with two boys. Stuart, who was born in May 2011, in December 2012, and they're blessing to us. And praise the Lord, they've asked the Lord into their hearts, and I pray that he uses them in a many ways to grow older. I left the army in 2014, not really knowing what to do, very unsettled, and to a certain extent I was disappointed. I wanted to finish my time, but it wasn't to be. I would say maybe the Lord took me out because it wasn't going to come out and the way things were going to go in the army after that isn't good. The moral compass of the army is completely destroyed now with all these liberal things that's coming into the world now and it's happening in the army now as well and it's destroyed it. But certainly from my left in 2014 I sought to spend more time in the Word of God studying it and searching it out and to see what the Lord was really saying to me. For I'm not perfect by any means, nor will I ever be until he comes. And also, also weighed, weighed what was going up in the world, or weighed what was going on in the world with the scriptures. Kept trying to see. For after being in Iraq and Afghanistan, you, you start to see that things aren't just as the same. What you've been told, what you be told in the news every day is not the truth of what actually is going on. And the true agendas of our corrupt government is in many cases not known or covered up. I don't think that we as a family, Janet, me and the boys, have ended up here as an accident. And I praise and thank the Lord daily for the fellowship here and the teaching we receive. But we must not be complacent. It looks very like Things are about to get extremely tight for the church. The things our government are rolling out now are very similar strategies, strategy, strategies, very similar tactics in a roundabout way as what we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. We must stand strong, look to the Lord, and seek him in repentance and prayer. I could go on all night, and I hardly, I hardly knew where to start or stop with this whole thing. But... I leave you with a wee verse in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, and I think I think maybe Bertie alluded to it this morning as well. Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen, it is. If my people, which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Thank you.